And welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 61. I had to look over my shoulder real quick to go, wow, 61 episodes. Today, we're talking about Mycroft Mimic 3. I added the word Mycroft in there because if you look up Mimic 3, apparently it's a movie. And <laughs> yep, I saw that on YouTube when I was looking up, um, you know, whether my video showed up or not. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. There's a movie. OK, yeah, there's a movie by the same name. And we're not talking about the movie. This has nothing to do with that movie. Uh, so that's uh, we'll just throw it out there in the beginning. This is going to be about the uh, text to speech system that's within. Yep. Uh, Mycroft, because this is a really cool topic. Jay's been uh, working on it. Uh, then we have some dev random. We have a few things that got changed, and we didn't, you know, we didn't want to stuff the title with everything that changed because that just becomes difficult. So we're going to stop for the main topic, and then we're going to uh, cover Q and A about a few new updates and things that were released. Uh, but first, let's thank a sponsor, and that is Linode. They've been with us for a while, sponsoring this. They are literally, if you've downloaded this from our website or visited the home lab show uh, website it's all hosted on linode jay maintains the uh software on there but linode is where all the servers reside they have been a great sponsor of the show they're a great place where you can get started with any of the projects so if you you know, just don't have the room for a server or it's something that you think would be better public facing. Leno is a great place to put it. Use their servers, not yours. If that's the use case you're looking for, head over to uh, Linode and use the offer code, the home lab show. And thanks Linode, for being a sponsor and uh, yeah, get started on your next project with them. They've been, they've been great. Sure um, but this is something we're going to have to host locally here is the mimic three engine. I'm assuming we have to start with it being locally hosted, right? Well, so I think some discussions in order about um, a little bit about Mycroft. We already had a full episode about it, so I'm not going to yeah. like go over. But let's give, like, give like, our new uh, listeners maybe a background on what Mycroft is. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, ex exactly. So because because you have to know that first, right? Well, you actually right. don't have to, but it just makes more sense that way. So, <laughs> um, you know, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of one of you know buying one of those voice assistants from like Best Buy or one of those stores? That Does that excite you? <laughs> I think they're spying on me. <laughs> right. And and that seems to be the general consensus and it's not wrong. Um, I'm a, I'm big on IOT and I don't own an Alexa or any of those other things. Sorry if I accidentally like uh, activated your smart speaker. Cancel, cancel, cancel. Um, cancel, cancel, cancel. Yeah. Cancel, cancel, cancel. Um, Mycroft is an open source voice assistant and it's something that has been a part of my channel for I don't know, like I want to say three years or more. It's been in the background and I've I've actually showed it in a few videos, but I didn't really do anything with it. But anyway, it's an open source voice assistant that doesn't spy on you. And that's awesome. It hooks into Home Assistant and many other things, the integrations. And it's kind of crazy how many there are. And they're coming out with a Mark II, which I have a prototype on my desk for the, you know, few people that are, um, you know, live stream. Well, by few, you know, uh, <laughs> usually grows or um, the podcast audience is obviously not going to see this unless I could just kind of teleport the thought into their brain. Yeah, that would be it, creepy. We don't want to do that. <laughs> well, 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 you know, and uh, don't worry, you can certainly look up what these look like and you can even watch a wonderful uh, 20. Was it the 2021 April Fool's video? Where Minecraft yeah, did its own review, so, it reviewed itself. So Jay has a great video on that because people are asking me, "Do a Minecraft video? Do a Minecraft video?" I wasn't ready yet because I, I really wasn't in a place where I felt like I deep dived enough to do a video that people would like on a technical level. 
So I'm like, oh, but I have to deliver. People want Mycroft. April 1st is coming up. And I'm like, well, you guys get what you asked for. It's not quite what you asked for, but it's what you get. So yeah, um, I had a lot of fun doing that. And the reason why that worked out so well is because it's a good sign when you, when you can SSH into your voice assistant. That's a good sign. That's a very good sign. Like, yeah. I don't know if people generally jailbreak their voice assistants, but um, you shouldn't have to do that. I'm just making an assumption that you can't by default, and I have a feeling I'm probably not wrong. But with Mycroft, you have the source code, you have the ability to SSH into it. Um, you can do whatever you'd like. I mean, it, it, it's yours to, I mean, you could break it. Don't break it, right? Don't rm-rf slash. That's the worst thing you can do. But if you could do that, it's not, you know, it's under your control. Don't do that. So the topic of today is Mimic 3. Mimic 3 is the text-to-speech engine that uh, powers Mycroft. And you could consider the Mycroft devices as um, sort of oh, like reference units, basically, for Mimic technology. Basically, you could buy an all-in-one unit, the uh, Mycroft unit, like I had in the original video. Or you could just get a Raspberry Pi, install it on that, do that for free. You could put it on your laptop or desktop if you'd like, which would be... Actually, something I want to try on my end. I've been meaning to get around to that. Ooh, can, so you can it install it. Laptop. What's would, that? It work, would it work on an older laptop? That might be interesting because it's got speakers built in. Well, I think it will because what I'm because there's a certain point about Mimic Three that I like the best. Um, but Mimic Three is the latest version of the text-to-speech engine. So before the issue was that even though it's a voice assistant that's on our side. It needs the cloud to do processing, which kind of might make some people feel uncomfortable. Now, I'll be clear. I don't feel like using the cloud at all by itself is a red flag. It can be. Absolutely, it can be, and it often is. But when you have an open source technology, it's not uncommon to utilize the cloud to you know, process some of the workload. But um, the selling point of Mimic, or I shouldn't say selling point, mm -hmm. but um, the cloud is not required for Mimic 3. You could have a device offline, no connection to the public internet at all, and it could process speech for you. So that basically means by association, because the Mark II, which is coming, I think it's September if I'm not mistaken, that's going to have Mimic 3 built in. So you'll have a voice assistant that can do that. Now, before you couldn't do that because older Raspberry Pi boards were um, even more constrained than they are now. So, you know, processing speech is just not going to happen on one of those older Pi boards. And the Mark I, of course, uses one of the older Raspberry Pis. And Mycroft is, is not, you know, they're not hiding the fact that there's a Raspberry Pi inside the case. Okay. They, that's pretty clear. And, and they mentioned that too, which is also why you can build your own. But one of the coolest things, though, I mean, the fact that they have, like, can, like they, I don't know how they did this exactly because I'm not on their development team, but they made the newer Raspberry Pi boards or they made the code efficient enough so Raspberry Pis even can process and synthesize speech. So if you want to try it on an older laptop, I would pretty much guess it's going to work fine because it's your laptop that you consider old is probably you know, more efficient than a Raspberry Pi, at least not more efficient, but faster. More, yeah. has, has more yeah. processing power. Yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, most likely it would. I mean, I installed it on a computer myself, but the computer that I installed it on, you know, it was an Intel NUC. Um, honestly, like that Intel NUC is probably more powerful than a Raspberry Pi. 
but the fact that it can run on a Raspberry Pi, that's pretty cool. So that's a pretty good metric when you develop something. If you can get it to run on that, chances are it'll run on pretty much everything. I, I think, too, there's a lot of uh, challenges with language because we all speak differently and we use words right. maybe in different orders. And, and we're just talking alone about English, not getting into the diversity of other languages. Uh, so I think that makes it a little bit more challenging versus, you know, Raspberry Pi is doing object recognition to figure out what a banana is or an apple is. Right. It's actually something that's been around for a while. There's some Python libraries and projects for that. But speech is a challenge and building the data sets you need to understand speech, I think is we when we talked about it in the Mycroft episode, I think that was why they had to spend so much time was building these models to constantly be listening to the variations of the way someone says even a single word or the phrasing thereof um, to understand the context to be able to turn it into a command. Uh, so I think that's it's taking a lot of probably a lot more hard coding work to make that work is uh, not just having something powerful enough to do all the work, but all the coding that goes into understanding language. Right, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to it when you have a Raspberry Pi and you try to get it to do various things and making the code run efficiently. But um, yeah, and the object recognition, I totally forgot about that, actually. I think we were speaking about that not that long ago. So yeah. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to be said about that. Now, Mimic 3 can be downloaded as like a dev package. The source code's on GitHub. There's a dev package for AMD64, for Raspberry Pi. There's a Python package. There's a Docker container. That's just off the top of my head. So if you want to run it on something, there's different formats that you can download it in to get that to work. So um, I definitely recommend checking it out. And the, the cool thing about it, I mean, it's it's just free in every sense of the word. It's not like free, fill out this contact form and then blow off the salesperson. Don't answer his phone calls after he starts calling you to get that download link. It's you actually just go and download it, which is really cool. And that's also a good sign because if something's behind a contact form, eh, that, that can kind of um, not that contact forms themselves are bad. But if you're forced to fill one out, that's um, there, there's a catch to that. So. I've been talking to Mycroft for, you know, back on and off for a long time now. I don't even remember how long. And it actually was not the April Fool's video that got their attention, surprisingly. Because <laughs> I kind of thought it would. But I don't know if they have, they actually saw it before, um, you know, I started talking to them. I don't think they did. And then we decided to time the release. Well, I should say I decided to time the video to release at the same time as Mimic 3. So today's actually release day for Mimic 3. And release for Mimic 3 itself was set for 11 a.m. today as of recording time, the same uh, time the video showed up as well. So it's out, and you can download it. You can hack on it. And the reason why I kind of decided it would be great to focus on this in a video to get the word out is because it's an open source project. So if you want a project to contribute to, here you go. It's an important project because if we don't step up and develop an alternative to the you know devices and voice assistants that are stealing our personal information, then um, we have no hope. We have to step up and develop something. Mycroft has done that. Obviously, you know we would probably benefit from free firmware and all these other things in our smart plugs and light bulbs and things. But this is a great step in the right direction. So I created the video today just to kind of talk about what Mimic 3 is get the word out, but also it's the first video in my Mycroft coverage on the channel because I do hope to do additional videos for Mycroft. So I think even though 
I showed Mycroft in an April Fool's video. And then again, in a OpenSUSE review, I had him, him and I both, it was kind of funny. We were kind of like talking back and forth, although I was behind the scenes with SSH and telling him what to say in response to what I'm saying, but it actually looked like a conversation that was really fun. But those are just fun videos, not, you know, Mycroft internally focused videos. So today's the day. So Mimic 3, I figured it makes sense. It's the text-to-speech engine and it's out right now. That is really cool. Yep, what are the it's, fun things? Well, let's back up. Can you mm -hmm. just load this or does it have to integrate with Mycroft? Can, can you just grab this text-to-speech engine and start playing with it and start, does it have like a framework, an API? How does it, how does it integrate? I'm so glad you asked that. So when you install the package, the first thing that you get is the mimic three command right in, the, right in your terminal. So you could type mimic three and then uh, quoted string, for example, if you want it to synthesize speech. It has the option of playing the speech back on the speakers of your device if you have a device that has speakers. Uh, you could definitely do that, or you could have it create a WAV file that you could then use and put wherever. So if you think of like, you could put it on a server and have it like generate uh, synthesized speech right in the right in a cron job even. I mean, think about it. you have a cron job that just kicks off a script and it'll maybe produce. I don't know. I don't know why you want to want to do that in a cron job, but you can. So cool. you can get a wave file or it plays back over the speakers. There is an API. It's, I uh, think I have a use case for this. So yeah, because you you start scripting this and then yep. you start having it just outputting so the computer can just tell me, you know, please open the pod bay Georgetown. <laughs> That that's true, but I mean, if you think about it, you could have it. Um, let's just say you needed some kind of assistive technologies. You can actually roll this right in if you wanted something to um, announce what time it is, because maybe your vision isn't such that you know. Because let's be honest, on, on any operating system, if you have challenges with vision, you're not going to get the panel thick enough to make the text of the clock big enough to actually see it. You could actually have um, something like this just read out the time or. If there's some way to hook it into into or if calendar, if your calendar has an API, you could probably have it read out your calendar appointments as they become due. Um, there's just many other things you can do with that. So it does have an API. So what I was able to do is just um, I have the reference device as well, the actually the Mark II prototype. So I could just actually hit the API right from a terminal, make it say something, which is pretty cool. It it also gives you a web console. I forget which port it is. So you can go into the web console, which I'm pretty sure is is um, being served by Nginx. You just it gives you a text box in your web browser. You can just type text into, click the button, and then you can get that text read out to you. And there's different voices, different uh, countries, even different. Um, like I don't know the correct word is dialect have. accents, right? Um, so you I, have all of that already. So and that's just the core of it. And then from there, I'd actually be kind of um, interested to see what people do with this because I'm sure there's, you know, you of course just now, but other people like I, I know what I'm going to use that for later. Well, and I think one, our first missed opportunity is we're 15 minutes into the podcast and we didn't have it do the intro to the podcast. So that's we. If we do another one on mimic, we will have it do part of the intro. Um, also, someone said it's probably great to have it talk to the phone scammers. And I'm like, I, I see that in the chat. That's I absolutely, an amazing idea. Yeah. Like I can just have it script. Like you guys can just all, all the phone scammers, you can just have a conversation with my, with my automation tool. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. That'd, be, that'd absolutely be a good uh, use case for it. And um, 
Yeah, it's getting me thinking now too. Because ultimately my first thing was it was I just want to see what it would be like to have a voice assistant on Pop OS to say, hey, you know, name, launch my browser or whatever I want to do. Not that it, it's that much effort to really click on the Firefox icon, let's be honest, but how cool would that be? And what kind of a talking point would that be if someone was over and I just told my computer to open an app and it did? That'd just well, be a lot of fun. We're all inspired by Star Trek. So, I mean, we watch, they talk to it and that's at least one thing that's consistent throughout the Star Trek series is they've really got the, the language systems figured out, one, for the Universal Translator, but two, so you can just talk to computers and they do things in a more natural way. That's the real vision they had in Star Trek was like, hey, this could be possible one day. Um, they just didn't realize that it most would be done by large companies that would try to figure out how to monetize the fact that you exist. <laughs> well, I'm going to attempt to do something right now. Um, I, I don't have a static IP. I, I should have uh, set that up. Uh, so as long as the IP didn't change, we're going to see if this thing can actually announce the show. Let's see what happens. All right. We're doing this live Welcome here. Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 61. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't that, that came great? very well. I like that. <laughs> it, it sounds so much better than the Mark One because if you like play back the April Fool's video, and there's even some of the Mark One in the new video, you'll hear the older voice, but it just sounds so much better. No, I definitely like that. Uh, let's try this one more time. All right. We're waiting for it. <laughs> Hello, Tom. Have you tried any new hot sauce lately? <laughs> oh, I had that's to. too cool. That is that, too that cool. is so much fun. Um, and I was able to do that by just typing echo and then a string in quotes, and then it um, it's in a video. But you just pipe it to curl dash x post the IP address. It's a little bit more than that. Then there's an API string you give it. You give it the target which is gonna be like your speakers or the target could be the other device where you want it to play back. So I gave it target server, which you know that guy right there is a server. So it receives it and then speaks it. I, I now want to put some of these around the house. And then when mm -hmm. I hear, cause you know, I, my studio's in my basement, my wife will occasionally yell something unintelligible, but then I can untells receive something back. Or I can simply type into the speaker, target living room. <laughs> what did you say, honey? <laughs> exactly. No, that would be, I could mess with my kids. It'd be kind of funny too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, have the kids when they go in there, have it tied to your refrigerator. You build it in with Home Assistant. You're I'm going to give it a challenge. Homework. I'm going to give him a uh, sci-fi reference to speak. Let's see if he's able to do it. I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> uh, yep so um the power of open source what can i say yeah no this is really cool this is definitely neat now you have a whole video on this you released as well is that correct yep it's about awesome. 15 minutes long somebody in the comments mentioned that my audio was out of sync in that video i hope uh i'm sorry if that's the case when i played it back it was fine so i'll yeah. i'll double check that in a moment but uh um yeah the video's out it's about 15 minutes long i show some examples via the command line and also give a behind the scenes look at how I did it with the April Fool's video. Obviously it's not the footage from back then. I didn't go back in time and you know to where I was doing it, but I reenacted how I did it back then. So you'll see at some point in the video how I actually made the Mark One uh, conversate with me in a video. Um, actually also in the OpenSUSE review as well, which was uh, 
think now the a version or two ago. Wow, time flies. Yeah, for sure. So that's what we have for the mimic. Uh, anything yep. else on the mimic, or we want to talk about ZFS? Well, yeah, I, I especially want to talk about that because I am offended by how easy this was. Um, and oh, by, okay. by offended, I mean like <laughs> that so many other people and companies out there do it wrong. That when when a, when someone does it right, I just want to just shout from the rooftop and and just set an example. And there's a lot of that lately. Like uh, for example, TrueNAS being able to you know, it has its OS on a completely different volume and its settings backup and data is all separate from that. So you can, you know, switch between different versions Vision. of TrueNAS, yeah. which is really cool. That's doing it right. And then when it comes to PFSense, you were you and I were talking about ZFS and how it's, you know, good to have. So I'm like, okay, I will um, go ahead and give it a shot. But in my case, that means a reinstall because I'm not on ZFS. So what I did was I, you know, like any any good person does, they take a backup i took a backup i grabbed that backup and i put it on a flash drive that was just i think i had it i think it wanted like fat 16 fat 32 i think it supports both so, yeah you you drop it on there and then on the other flash drive i loaded pfsense or by downloading the iso using dd i copied it over there booted my firewall from the usb stick and then i had the other one with the config file on there i just to told it to wipe everything and reload and when it booted up, everything was like it was before yeah. I did anything. Like all the networks came back, the subnets, the VLANs, the rules. Um, and let's let's get a little context into this real quick, yeah. though. Uh, we jumped a little bit ahead. So what? Yeah. When PFSense 2.6 was released and the PFSense Plus uh, 2202, I think it was, uh, they both started with ZFS as default. Now, you could load ZFS prior to that, but it was not the default install. And tyranny of the default, as Steve Gibson says, very holds true. Most people next and yes to the way they install. What happened, though, was after they defaulted it to that, they've added more enhanced features to support ZFS. So they've actually give you some functionality in the UI. Most recently with PFSense 2205, you get a lot more functionality with the uh, ZFS options. But of course, people asking, Tom, how do I switch to ZFS? And there's not a switch to ZFS. But as Jay said, if you reload your PFSense box, grab that config.xml file, make sure you have a backup of it, and as Jay did, he popped it on another flash drive during the install process. So one flash drive is your installer. One flash drive has the um, config.xml file. You just wipe, reload. But then while in the reload process, you can do it after as well. But while during the reload process, because it's faster, you can grab that config.xml file. And when it reboots, it's just it's right where you left it. All your settings are there. Like Jay said, the VLANs, the settings, you don't really have to monkey with anything. You don't have to spend time uh, goofing around to get it set back up. Everything just restores as if nothing happened. So now the only thing different is you have ZFS functionally. Um, you had a little bit of downtime because you wiped and reloaded your firewall, but you didn't have to spend time assigning interfaces or anything because you're reloading on the same firewall. They've done a nice job, as Jay said, of making that really simplistic to do. It's why I see people asking, there's actually a discussion a couple of times in my forums that happened where, oh, I take full images of my hardware device. I'm like, you don't need it. Just make sure you have a thumb drive laying around with a copy of the operating system on it and your config XML file. Those are the only two things you need to reload PFSense and put it exactly how it was. And, it, and considering it's an XML file, you can open it up and make sure that it's actually readable, right? Because we always tell you test the backups. And simply reading an XML file does not constitute testing a backup, but it is something that you could do to see if you can open it in a text editor and there's you know not a bunch of gibberish in there. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, it, it works just fine. And like, like Tom said, it was just, I mean, I waited till everyone was sleeping and then I just did it and there was just nothing. I thought knowing me and my bad luck, I was going to break something, <laughs> something wouldn't come up right. But I actually thought that maybe I would have to reboot again just to get the settings to apply, but no, it was there. Like everything was there. I did choose to like not have it save the DCP leases when I took the backup because I don't care. It's just going to, everything's going to reconnect anyway. So yeah, pretty easy. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's a neat option that uh, I think they only added after 2.6. It's a, in 2022 is when that feature came out. So you can, I think, back up the leases. Before that was an option that this just wasn't a checkbox there, um, which it can cause a little bit of problem if you ever have to reload a firewall. Um, if it doesn't say, save the DCP lease table, leases are obviously kind of static they're i mean there's your static leases that are absolutely in the config but it's the all the other ones that were handed out if you don't save that table it'll rehand things out again except things that already have the lease won't ask for a new one until that lease expires so you sometimes end up with conflicts um we actually run into that a lot when people swap firewalls uh just in general they just upgrade a firewall and they're like a lot of things aren't working i'm like reboot all the things power off the switch power it back on that usually will prompt many devices if they see a status and link change a lot of them will go oh yeah i should ask for a lease again because i even though my lease isn't up i seen a link change um iot devices are hodgepodge random they may not ask for it they may have to be power cycled to ask but yeah that's uh the process on the pfsense side is pretty painless sometimes on the other side just reboot things that fixes all the things <laughs> Have you ever noticed that on residential routers, just the kind that just, you know, the Wi-Fi routers you buy at like Walmart where, you know, a, a device will reboot and get a different IP address, but, you know, usually things ask to use the same IP address again when they go to reconnect. But I've noticed that some of the residential ones that strangely enough, devices will constantly get different IPs. Whereas with PFSense, it just does a great job that unless you change something, it's just going to. I'm not saying you can rely on DHCP. Don't. I'm not saying that. But, <laughs> um, but what I am saying is that every time I've experienced this, it's, everything gets the same IP address again more accurately than you know most. I would say. Yeah, it's the way D, uh, PFSense holds on to the lease table. I believe even over reboots, um, it it's only on a reload that it loses the lease table. But I think that's not mm. the same for some of the community ones, not community, but not community, but uh, like the consumer ones is what I'm looking mm -hmm. for. Some of the consumer ones, if I'm not mistaken, don't, they don't care. They're like, this is a temporary table held in RAM and oh, we rebooted time to hand them all out again. And I think that's uh, common from a design standpoint. No one thought to even take the time to write some temporary file. Of course, the limited amount of rights you can do on a consumer one they don't have a lot of storage on them um they're well not uh carefully crafted uh there was even i, I tweeted today about another attack on a big collection of different consumer routers uh some of these sound like they were some unknown vulnerabilities in them and they're yeah they're not well crafted they're not always well vetted people are constantly finding problems in them um, and just because problems haven't been found it's only because almost all the time only because no one has really taken the time to poke at them. So I'm not going to say that they're the best. It's becoming clearer and clearer um, that they're not great to use. And I think a lot of our audience probably knows that it's the general populace using them that is causing some of these issues. <laughs>
Yeah, you say that. And then literally today, there's a um, modem upgrade that I have to endure from Comcast that I kind of just put off because I don't really need it, but they think I do. And it's, mm. um, I save $50, long story, but they're going to yeah. bring a, a new device over. Like, yeah, it has Wi Fi, it has this feature, that feature. I'm thinking, eh, I don't care. <laughs> like, just put this stupid thing in bridge mode so I could use PFSense and just turn all that stuff off. And I'll also, kill ipv6 because i'm not an isp but um you know hopefully everything goes according to plan but it, it's just every time i have a new modem that has all these features built in i'm like yeah what i have is really good compared to that and it yeah. always is it's just great i mean doing it yourself now um another topic i want to talk about is there was a new release to true nas scale and uh, it's another update to it, but I, I took the time to really do some in-depth testing. So I like scale. I, it's not people think I'm disliking the product, but it comes down to use case, as I always tell people. I love the fact that they've built some of the Docker images in and they have a lot of features around that. The challenges that have come with it, uh, specifically in my enterprise realm, is the storage consulting I do for high performance storage, and it's not high performance yet. So I did a video on this already where I broke down all the numbers, but essentially when it comes down to 4K and 8K small block size writes that are really intensive, which, you know, that could be a database application, that could be um, a bunch of small writes because of some workload that's running in a VM and you're using it as a storage target, uh, it falters a lot. Now, what I've not been able to prove, and it's just a matter of it's a lot of work to set this up. Um, a few people commented, though, to me, uh, and one of them, I think, DM me on Twitter this. This is a Linux problem where Linux has a harder time with small writes, high I.O., allegedly, according to two different people that messaged me. Uh, I don't know that this is true until I really test it. Um, they didn't give me credentials that made me go oh yeah, this makes sense. But I thought about reaching out to uh, maybe like Wendell from level one and asking him to see if he's seen some of the same things, if it's a BSD versus Linux controversy, because they're neck and neck on larger rights of larger blocks. But when we were doing the testing and scale being be based on Linux versus TrueNAS Core being based on BSD, that's the only stark difference between them is those small rights. But when you start using the larger rights, because this is exactly, we took the same hardware, reloaded it with scale. So we ran it on core, ran our battery of tests, reloaded it with scale, ran our same exact tests again. So we're dealing with, you know, the minimal amount of variance other than the operating system being different. All other things were the same. And that's the only substantial difference we've seen between them. Um, so I, I think it's interesting. I, I, I don't know as I, I know there's reasons even like Netflix to this day is built on um, BSD for some of their delivery because they, they could do better kernel tuning management with it. And BSD has been around for a long time doing tuning for things like that. Specifically, uh, contributions to the BSD kernel come from the people like at IX Systems to get all of this tuning. It's not like they started yesterday doing it. They've been doing this for years. And as product bases and code bases mature with you know, enterprise level use cases, which BSD has a ton of them. Uh, there was a lot of engineering that went into solving small write problems because it, it is an issue. You think of what a lot of the world runs on today, what are cloud applications, especially ones at scale, tons of database writes, tons of small writes. Um, you can say all the extra layers in between. You're like, but aren't they running Ceph clusters? And, you know, they spread the load out over this. Well, sure. But at some point somewhere, there's a tiny 
four kilobyte text type that someone did and updated some status on some social media site that eventually had to be translated into a small write. And someone tuned the performance to take that little bit of uh, 240 characters on Twitter, turn it into something that got written to a disk somewhere. And uh, I'm willing to bet somewhere is probably a BSD machine where it landed on. I don't know exactly what runs the back end of all these hyperscale companies, but I know we've consulted enough with the TrueNAS core to know that BSD lives at the heart of a lot of these systems. So I think that's kind of the broader answer as to why you see a lot of really um, high performance systems being on FreeBSD and Linux, not that it can't do these things. It has not been tuned to it. I mean, TrueNAS scale is still a pretty new product and the team is uh, working diligently at solving these problems. So they're not going un unaddressed. People are like, they need to address it. I'm like, it, they will. It just takes time to do. And right. they have integrations are doing right now with Kubernetes that has its own complexities that they're integrating on top of that they're also building clustered file systems so there's a lot going into this project at once um that's why i always tell people be patient with it it's not that i don't like it but i don't know that i would run if you have a production workload that has that uh demand on small rights it may not be the right system for you <laughs> do you know what scheduler true scale uses no i do not because i don't know if that's the reason but i've noticed that I've noticed I.O. problems. I mean, I, I use Linux on everything. It's not as bad now, but I, I remember it often being the case that it comes down to which scheduler they go to use. Like, um, I, I remember when I first started, even, there was a big push to try to get the BFQ schedule scheduler to be the default in distributions and whatnot. But what I would notice is that if I was backing up my hard drive or copying a bunch of files to an um, external hard disk or something, like, I couldn't even browse the web. Like, like, forget using my computer on, mm. on most Linux distributions. I just can't. Like, eh. It, like, it's going to take an hour to complete. I better stop using my computer completely until that's done. And that got really frustrating. Like, even sometimes writing to a flash drive would be a problem. And it's not as much of a problem now, but it still does become a problem. And I think that could even be why Pop! OS decided to come out with their own scheduler for, for their distribution because of that same problem. The... IO scheduler issue in Linux is just one of those things that it's like, why is this still a problem? If it if I can't copy files to a hard drive without the entire system slowing down to a crawl, it needs to be fixed. There's there's no excuse at this point. Like it's been years. Like yeah. what's going on, guys? Like like this is not the way it should be. But again, it is better nowadays, but it's still not great. But I haven't really noticed it as much, if at all, on Pop OS because you know, literally, I was just copying the entirety of my um, unedited videos from TrueNAS to a local external hard disk attached to my Thelio, and it's fine. Um, I, I didn't even notice a blip. So that, I don't yeah. know if that's the issue, but that's the first thing I would look at. Yeah, there's the other issue. I've seen someone mention in the chat, smb.com. There, there is also a challenge when you have thousands and thousands of files and you're trying to write them using Samba. Uh, Samba is needs some retooling to be able to scale. Uh, there's working on it. It's, it's on the roadmap to um, better deploy some new technology into it in a way it handles that. But there's uh, some files. So sometimes people realize they have a 10 gig connection and a full flash array. And when they're moving large 
individual video files as I do, they get this incredible maximum performance. And then they try to copy their uh, collection of 10,000 memes over and they're like, but the 10,000 memes is less than the one video file Tom moved <laughs> and it's taking longer. I'm like, yep, welcome to Samba and writing 10,000 small JPEGs uh, or PNG files somewhere. Uh, it'll have a much um, bigger problem. And it's, uh, Someone said it's slow because of user space, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I thought about doing a video where I break down the complexities of it because Wendell's actually dealt with this a lot. I, I think it'd be a good thing where he's um, could talk it to it's it's the way it utilizes uh, it's something about the way that it has to do these lookups. It's not just a user space kernel space problem, but there's some other functional problems with its design. I can't remember what it is because even Microsoft has moved to a different way of handling it and. Samba is going to follow the way Microsoft is. It's something with the way it has to pipeline things, not through the kernel, if I'm not mistaken. I could be a little bit wrong on that. Uh, I remember reading about it and said, that's interesting. I understand it better. But then the knowledge fell out of my head. I can't articulate it right now. So I need that white paper in front of me for how to get that to work. But it is also why um, a lot of people don't do uh, Samba for those type of services. Like you're not going to use Samba, if that's your use case you're going to use, it's still going to be faster probably to even use something like NFS. So there's other ways to handle that. I think another topic worth bringing up really quick, though, is, um, I mean, I need, I need to rant, but I'm going to try not to sell it as a rant. But why on earth are these problems with, you know, file, like shared file systems still a problem at all? Like NFS, even in NFS4, has locking issues. Maybe not as bad. Yep. They've made improvements. NFS still sucks. Samba continually makes improvements. It still has problems. And now just the other day, as I'm writing the book that I'm wrapping up right now, I am faced with the decision to remove SSHFS because the um, maintainer decided they don't want to do that anymore. So I don't even know if they're going to find a new maintainer and if I can even trust SSHFS at this point, because who could tell the future? This is literally developing right now. So I'm probably going to have to remove that out of the book. So there goes that. Now we have, you know, Kubernetes, even containerization has happened since, and actually everything has happened since NFS because NFS has been out forever. But virtualization, you know, Kubernetes, we get into these new technologies, cloud, all these advancements. And then you have like um, overlay networks. That's a, an amazing invention. WireGuard, that's yep. great. Why the heck can't we put some actual attention on shares that don't suck. Like these people that put all of these great attention and their skill set on these problems and come out with amazing solutions. We need a new technology to share files. We just do because everything we have sucks. Yeah, and I think but part of the reason is it's solving for the minority versus the majority. The people who have those problems are the one-offs. And I think that's where Samba works for 99.9%. .9%. Who it doesn't work for is you know, the, the the consulting work we do has been uh, kind of specific to people in the um, graphics industry where they're literally working on films you've heard of and they have to do 3D sets. And those sets require 20,000 photos to run through some type of parsing tool that does an automation to them. And they're all a bunch of tiny little, you know, image files um, that then eventually get stitched back together into a movie fast. Kind of weird how it all works. Um, I don't know why it works that way. Someone else engineered that part of it. I'm just here to solve the or explain or look at better ways of connecting <laughs> with the Samba problems with it. Um, and how we can make that um, 
faster. And I see someone even mentioned like iSCSI, and that is the solution we do sometimes providing iSCSI because um, iSCSI is kind of like a workaround for file sharing. It's not a sharing service necessarily. It's presenting a block device over IP. Um, so you just kind of kick the can down the road. They're like, I don't know how to get files in small batches to you fast, but we can wrap it in a protocol and send it over IP. Doesn't allow sharing, but it kind of kicks the can down the road of being able to have a large block device I can write things to that's part of a NAS, but then still have that fast interactivity. And it, it literally is sometimes a solution we have from a storage design standpoint to what will get the job done because we need, you know, some huge amount of storage that's unreasonable to stick into a Windows computer, but we can spin up a true NAS running iSCSI and make a block iSCSI mount and have a 100 gig backplane connection that allows it to uh, do all these small writes to be able to get the task at hand done. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do agree with a lot of what you said. It's just the way I see it, though, what makes this strange to me is that companies complain um, that I've experienced, they, they complain because you think about all the companies out there that are saving a ginormous number of small files or, you know, doing deep learning or whatever shenanigans are getting into where they're processing a lot of data and there's a lot of companies out there. Um, I often feel like when people are sitting down and they're talking about how do we design this? Well, the conversation will shift to these are the options. We need to go with one of these options. And then it's basically down to pros and cons of each. And then they choose the one that sucks less and they just live with it because what are they going to do, <laughs> right? Their their IT team is, is just so spread thin. They're not going to go invent a new sharing technology as part of their, um, you know, unless maybe they're Wendell. Wendell could probably do that. But yeah. ev everyone who's not Wendell though um, would not be able to do that. And I really feel like it would be an amazing benefit to come out with a modern file sharing solution cross-platform that actually works. And I know that's a big ask, but then I, I've also seen the community come out with some amazing things that has blown my mind. So if the community is able to do that, I would say that other people are as well. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that some companies do solve these problems um, Amazon being one, they they have a solution that has fixed some of the NFS issues by, I don't want to call it a fork of NFS. Um, I'm not going to get onto the AWS bandwagon here, um, but they they developed something, but they're keeping it to themselves and they're not like letting other people have it. So you got to use AWS if you want that. So there is a little bit of that going on where you have the cloud providers, they will tweak things in such a way or maybe fork something, but it's theirs. I, I want I want to see some replacement that's cross-platform that'll actually hook into modern file systems, hook into modern kernel features. We could probably blow away NFS and Samba performance with the right tweak. So that's my yeah. challenge to the community. I, I hope somebody will feel adventurous and take that on because I really feel like enterprise IT needs you. They need this. Yeah. Samba, not the biggest fan, although I use it. NFS, not the biggest fan. I use it. Now SSHFS is off my list because who knows if it's going to get a maintainer. So, yeah, um, and that's a little scary when something like SSHFS is in, um, is in potential danger of, um, you know, being removed from distros. You know, and uh, I see people mentioning here in the chat, and I, I agree with this because I said this at the, um, let me add the full context to it. I said this in the video where I did the comparison to the latest TrueNAS uh, scale and core and the latest release. As of right now, do I think TrueNAS scale is production ready? 
depends. Could you use it or trust it for your data storage needs, like, you know, a Samba share or a uh, iSCSI extent? I didn't find any reliability problems in that aspect of it, but the implementation of Docker and the stability of updating and deploying apps, I don't think, and this is based on me even reading forum posts, uh, there are several people with forum posts where they talk about the instance breaking and not allowing any of their Docker containers to come up. Uh, wow. It just screwing up sometimes. And then my i didn't see replies i mean i didn't check back recently but there was uh, people who reached out to me now the part that confused me was they were using this in a production environment so they're like hey tom can you offer emergency help to sort out why all my docker stuff is broke in true scale and i'm like not really i mean i'm not i'm not a docker expert for one and two it's it's beta uh, as, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And I see people then posting in the forums, but at, after two days, I didn't even see a response in the forums that are questions about not being able to bring up any of their instances and also not having a good error log to go off of. Um, it's not that Docker is the problem, but it's a new integration that they're doing with the team over at TrueNAS Scale. It's cool they're doing it. It offers a lot of flexibility, um, but for production workloads. Now, the good news is even with this person, they didn't have a data integrity problem. ZFS uh, is still well engineered and well integrated into there. So the data is all there. They just can't get the Docker containers to come up. They're all in some yeah. stuck state. Um, so once again, for from a production standpoint, if you're asking, can I store my data on it? Yeah, sure. Can I run my Docker images on it? Sure. Are they absolutely bulletproof and reliable? Well, I don't know if updates randomly break them, then no. And these people have mm -hmm. built quite a few containers on there. So they're, you know, using it from a storage efficiency standpoint really well. And I, I get that, especially in a home lab, why have 10 servers when I can have one server do 10 things. There's a good reason for that as long as it's, done reliably and doesn't create a giant monster for you which is why i don't know if you i, I don't know if you're familiar with it jay uh but this is um i may do a follow-up video on it because i think wendell did such a great job he called it the forbidden router uh basically hmm. he, he built, <laughs> yeah he built an xcpng system that does everything it runs his firewall it runs uh a bunch of all of his services all running inside xcpng and one single beefy system because it's his home system he didn't want to have several servers at home so he did what he titled the forbidden router and it's a three-part series wendell did on there um i thought about uh, reaching out to wendell and see if he wants me to do is i don't think he did is in-depth on how he configured pf sense and i thought about doing because people ask about it and yeah, why not? I'll build, I'll build a forbidden PF sense router just for fun uh, and walk through the details of that kind of a fork off of Wendell's project. If people are interested, you know, it's, it it's pretty like cool. A lot of fun. It is. It's a really cool. I love, I liked his title for it. Um, and his title is the reasoning of, can you do this? Yes. It'll also test some of your skills, test some of your learning, and it could possibly test your sanity if it all falls apart with an update uh, because you've integrated so many things so tightly together. Um, and, and you have to update because there's always security things, there's always issues. So not updating is great in terms of stability, but bad in terms of security. But then your updates... Um, to keep you secure can affect your stability. So there becomes some uh, back and forth. But Wendell did something rather clever, uh, which was he did a drive pass-through for PFSense. And the reason he did that, um, instead of putting it within the hypervisor, when you do a drive pass-through, if the hypervisor goes belly up and all the services go down, you go into the BIOS, you boot off of the PFSense. 
and oh. he has sense now can boot because he's also passing he's had a couple extra network cards and he did a pass through with the network card so PF Sense is already using a pass through. So if you reboot the machine off of the SSD, in theory, PF Sense will go, oh, hey, there's a network card I was already using, and then boot and run, even though your hypervisor is broken. At least you're online, because that's what matters, because you're going to have to get online to redownload and troubleshoot all the problems that occurred. <laughs> so one thing I want to mention, though, um, disclaimer, I haven't really looked very closely at TrueNet Scale yet, because hearing all the um, people saying this needs to get fixed, that kind of makes me want to wait until the next major release, just a thing. But I recently ran into a lot of work where when I was updating the book, uh, Mastering Ubuntu Server 4th Edition, I'm going to get that plug out there, it's coming. Um, the chapter that's changed the most, it's a, it's a toss-up between AWS and um, setting up a Kubernetes cluster because it just didn't work. Like everything I did and how I did it in 2004 did not work in 2204. And I know that TrueNAS scale is not based on Ubuntu, so I'm not saying that. Right. But they do share a common ancestor with Debian, as I understand it. So there's been a shift towards ContainerD rather than using Docker as the containerization engine within Kubernetes. And when I went to update the book so that it's using ContainerD rather than Docker, which is the correct thing to do, it um, nothing worked. Like it kept all the containers just fell over. They were they're broken. Nothing would work at all. And I think it took me a good week to figure it out. And all of the how tos and blogs, I'm not going to say they were wrong, but each of them were missing something to get it to work. And that's one of the reasons why I intend on doing a video on this. I, I, I don't I don't know what containerization engine they're using on uh, TrueNAS scale if they're actually using Docker or ContainerD. But if they're switching over to ContainerD, there could be some issues because it's been said that ContainerD should be just a drop-in replacement. Anytime I hear that, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, that scares me. Um, the only drop-in replacement that's ever worked well for me personally has been uh, MariaDB, um, you know, replacing uh, MySQL with that. That's worked fine, in, at least in my case. But when you deal with containers, you're also dealing with a container engine. Um, a container runtime is the term that I'm supposed to be using here. And that's going to be a problem for some people. I don't know if maybe um, their developers are running into some of the same problems. Uh, I don't know. It could be that. But there, there's definitely some challenges right now as things uh, migrate over to the new normal. Yeah, it's... um. It's, I think it's a lot of just the way they're integrating it. It's just, it's a big undertaking and yeah. it's probably, you know, I, I understand how hard it is to code a lot of this stuff. And simultaneously, the, the same, some of the same team, at least the same company um, are, you know, they were able to pull off TrueNAS 13, which went really smooth. I didn't really have any issues with 13. There's going to be a 13 U1 come out. Cause I mean, there were still some bugs. It wasn't bug free, but of they, a lot of them were minor bugs and there was workarounds for it. There's like a problem with not being able to replace a drive. Uh, the U, there's a couple of UI elements that didn't work right. Like mm. not it's stuff you can still do. There's just UI elements that made it goofy. Um, I found those before as well. There was like a, you couldn't unlock a nested data set um, from one of the menus. You always had to go to a second menu. I, I reported one of the bugs. I was like, this is, it's, it, it still works. It's just got a UI element bug where it, it puts the data in the wrong spot. <laughs> well, that's um, pretty bad if you put data in the wrong spot. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It just, well, I, it, yeah. To summarize the point, I've been, you know, as someone that's been using Linux for like two decades, actually more than two decades now, it's, 
I, I get thrown through a loop myself when something like this happens and we migrate to something else and then um, it doesn't work as expected. That happens to all of us. So um, even developers as skilled as them, I mean, they're going to run into the same problems I run into. You know, every now and then something throws you through a loop and you got to figure it out and make something work that technically should but isn't. That's the most egregious and frustrating, but um, they're they're getting it done at least. So um, yeah. just give them some more time. Well, and it's worth noting too, and I, I made sure to comment to this in my last video, um, they removed the pip installer because people were loading all kinds of extra things. And this is where, from a developer standpoint, you know, it, it's pretty clear. True NAS, whether it's be core or scale, these are not full-blown distributions. These are appliances. And what I mean by that is they're meant to be used the way the developers intended to. They didn't give you an operating system and say load TrueNAS scale as an add-on for your OS. They're spinning the entire thing into an appliance. And what right. happens is sometimes the tech support problems get increased because people started installing their own Python packages and started uh, modifying the underlying OS. So now when they say this doesn't start, they're like, well, that's a weird error. How did you get that package on there? Uh, so you can also sometimes that can be a contributing problem to building an appliance and providing support for it is people monkeying with it because uh, they actually yeah. uh, they have a, someone did a request. Hey, and the new version, the pip installer is gone and they close the ticket going. You're not supposed to use that. <laughs> You're supposed to use RUI. Don't go in here and start adding packages because it messes things up. One of the first things I did was scale as a test and ended up reloading it immediately after because it broke. Uh, I, I said, oh, cool. It's based on Debian. This is before it was even in, it was in its earliest releases, its nightlies. <laughs> and I typed apt-get update and it worked once. <laughs> and then it didn't, then it didn't boot again. <laughs> so <laughs> I am so in agreement about the appliance thing. That's exactly what these are. That's exactly yeah. how you need to treat them. If I was like back in my beginner days and I had, I still had my Ansible script that I have now, I would absolutely point that Ansible script over at, at TrueNAS yeah. scale and have, have it configure everything like it is on my local Ubuntu system because why not, right? You you make your you can have the same dot files and the same packages on everything, including TrueNAS. But now that I'm you know more seasoned, I have learned the hard way that these types of things you consider them appliances. If you don't want to consider it an appliance. You could absolutely just create your very own Debian server with, with stock Debian and install Samba, install NFS, and all the different bits and pieces that you need to build a NAS. You can absolutely do that. But if you're going to customize things, you should do that and not use TrueNAS, in my opinion. But to be fair, I would have done the same thing when I was, um, I'm not saying whoever that was that you know, broke it is a beginner. I don't want to make that uh, you know distinction, but if it were me... I probably would have done that earlier in my career. Yeah. So um, I'm sure they get a lot of that. I'm sure well, they do. And this is the reason, um, and I've covered this before. Maybe I need to revisit again. I work with the team over at 45 Drives, and they've done a great job with like Cockpit. Um, and this puts a nice UI that allows you to do a lot of the storage management and everything else um, based on a standard OS. So you take the standard OS, you can load your ZFS on there, and that OS can be Ubuntu, that OS can be um, whatever, you know, the base underlying is that Cockpit supports. But I think I did my demos all on Ubuntu, but now you have an Ubuntu-based system that people are very familiar with that you can do whatever you want with, but you would like, and I understand the need for it, especially um, when I demoed it, we were managing 30 hard drives with it. Well, 30 hard drives from the command line, that's a little bit more tedious uh, when you're building out the ZFS stuff. Not that you can't do it, not that you can't script it, right. but it's a little bit 
trickier to manage doing the cockpit UI with the uh, 45 drives and they have it all open source. They made some open source contributions to add a ZFS manager, a Samba management. So you can use a nice web UI to manage all of that functionality um, pretty easily. It, and it works really well. So that's where you probably want to go. Matter of fact, they, they go a step further. If you go over to the 45 drive channel, um, they take Proxmox, and then load cockpit, I believe, with it. I think they have a whole video on that now. So they show how you can build out even uh, further integrations because, you know, some of these things that you want to build out like that, uh, that aren't just appliances, they're full operating systems, you can. Uh, TrueNAS is more the exception for it. So hmm. oh, they're saying, I wish cockpit had better ButterFS support, but understandably why it does not. Yeah, I don't, I don't expect that. ZFS is pretty much... You know, when it comes to ButterFS is used so little compared to ZFS. I'm not saying it shouldn't be used more. It's a good system. Jay's got a video on that as well. So it dives deeper into the topic. We've talked about it before on, I don't know which episode, a couple episodes ago, we did talk about ButterFS. So, uh, but yeah, ZFS is still um, the king. And by coincidence, I, I wore my shirt today. It says ZFS is a cult with integrity. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess um, anytime you set up something in cockpit, if it doesn't support ButterFS, you have to have the comment or a pop-up window that says, I can't believe it's not ButterFS. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to do that. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. I think we covered all the topics. We got anything else on the dev random list, Jay? I have like a zillion things, but also in the interest a zillion of time, probably not for now. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, this has been episode 61, Mycroft Mimic 3. For those of you that find that Mycroft Mimic, or Mimic 3 is, is a movie, not what we're talking about here. I did leave a link so you can get down there. Um, let us know. Send us some messages. Tag us on Twitter with what interesting things you have it saying. Um, and I fully and totally expect at least some percentage of you have it swearing. So don't. <laughs> yeah, sure. oh my God. I don't think that's a bad use case either, by the way. Well, yeah. You know. Uh, the childish part of me says that's probably the first thing it's going to say is is a string of profanity. So. And, and how many of us that have been into IT as long as you and I, how many of us have installed Bonzi Bud, even though it's spyware, just to make it swear? Come on. I mean, I mean, I I'm sure there's a lot of people that have done that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining and see you next time.